The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 3, 18-22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are wrapping up, um, for those of you who are just joining us, we're wrapping up um, chapter 3 of 1 Peter. And we've been studying um, the, the Apostle Peter's first letter, um, for the last, I don't know, it's probably been 20-some weeks up to this point, where we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we typically do this through books of an entire Bible. Um, and so we're here right in the middle of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Christians that he addresses as elect exiles. Now, the word exiles would imply that there's some sort of physical exile, right? They've been shipped out of their homeland into a, a new country, but that's not necessarily the case, as we have found out um, the exile that, that Peter is addressing these people, the, that they're in, is more of a cultural, social exile. These are people who don't really fit in with the culture at large. They tend to go against the strong current of culture because they don't share the same values that culture has. And because of this, they stick out. They're easy targets for humiliation, for being marginalized. And what we can see is that we also, as Christians today, share these same tendencies. That if we are outspoken for Jesus, if we are living all in, a lot of times we're going to be met with resistance, humiliation, try to be marginalized and pushed out. And in light of this, Peter is teaching his people that he's writing to, and us, not just how to make it through this life, not just how to survive, but how to thrive in unfavorable circumstances. Now, the only way that this can happen is if you are profoundly rooted in your identity in Christ and dependent upon God's power for all of life. Now, to live this way creates a parallel Christian culture, right? If, if culture at large is moving in this direction, the Christian culture is, is sort of outside of it, though it's in relation to it. It's outside of that culture moving in sort of a different direction as well. What's happening here with this Christian parallel culture is it's providing a compelling alternative that values goodness, beauty, and truth. Now, as a culture lives in this, as, as there's that Christian parallel culture that's developed, growing, maturing, and multiplying are typical characteristics of a thriving community, right? Because healthy and vibrant things reproduce. And this has been evident, even here in our church, that God has blessed us with many thriving marriages. I would say that probably half of our church growth has been the mean, through the means of 
new birth, right? Children actually being born into our church. God has blessed us greatly with thriving marriages, and so there is multiplication that happens. And we hope to see the same thing happen within our missional communities and, and our church at large, that God continues to bless us with thriving communities that multiply, that grow and mature, that we have more leaders, that we'd have a wider reach and have a bigger impact on our city so the gospel could be known and experienced by those who are longing to hear some good news. Now to thrive in the midst of opposition, to be Christians and to be thriving, it has an attractive element to it. Or at least it's intriguing to people who are on the outside. So your boss, if you're living as a Christian at work, your boss will wonder why you have such great respect for him or her even when they treat you poorly. Your unbelieving husband can be one to Christ based purely on your servant-hearted disposition toward him. Your brotherly love and humility toward your MC is something that outsiders want to experience. They want to get in on that. See, this is why Peter has previously told the Christians to be ready to explain the reason why you live the way you live, right? Be prepared to give an account. Now, in a culture where words and audible truth doesn't really matter anymore, right? This is the era of fake news. What's really true? What's, what's trustworthy? Words don't seem to matter anymore. But what, what's happening now, there is a premium now placed on the actions of Christians, People don't believe you just by your word for it. People want to see it. They want to see your faith lived out. And when I think about this, when I think the impact of radical living for the name of Jesus, I get so pumped up about this, right? To see how living normal, ordinary lives in submission to Jesus can have an impact on our cities. That is exciting for me because that is the way that people are one to Christ. And if Jesus is the Lord of your heart, then you should get pumped up too, right? This is something that you can die for. This is something not only you die for, but something you, you live for. You say, I'm all in for this. But to live this way, to be all in for Jesus, to live faithfully to his call, it is not easy. Not at all. See, you will be sinned against. You will suffer unjustly. You will be mocked. You will be ridiculed. Now, a lot of times when you're in these tough times, knowing that something might come out of it in the end oftentimes enables you to push through it, right? To know that, you know, at the end of this season, there's going to be something great. You say, well, it'll all be worth it when my coworker or my family member comes to faith. It'll be worth it all. But years and years go by and nothing changes. Maybe your MC is doing great. You're engaged with mission. You're creating a gospel culture. You're praying for your friends. You're inviting your friends. But at the end of the day, you don't see any numerical growth. In fact, for the last year or two, maybe you've been the same size the whole time. See, what happens here is we become frustrated and oftentimes confused, right? You think, am I doing it wrong? Like, if, if I'm doing it right, how come this isn't working? 
And oftentimes this gives way to discouragement, right? We wonder, what's the point of all this, right? I'm, I'm going through tough times. I'm laying down my life, and it's very difficult. Why do I keep doing this if I have nothing to show for it? And if your discouragement isn't dealt with, then what it can lead to is you giving up, right? Throwing in the towel. Now, today's passage deals with the frustrations and disappointments that comes along with living faithfully to Jesus in community and on mission. See, Scripture is not naive about this. There isn't this sort of... uh, uh, general idea, you come to Jesus and everything becomes rainbows and ponies. That's not the way it is. See, Scripture doesn't pretend that growth, personal growth and in community isn't always up and to the right, right? That's how we tend to like it, right? If you got that little, little chart there, we like to see that growth up to the right. But growth, what Scripture reveals, is more like a roller coaster where you got a little bit of this going on and then finally... It seems like there's some growth. There are seasons of slow growth intermixed with surprising plummets, the twists and turns that seem to be unexpected, even though we might be expecting them. And if we want to endure and finish well, if we long to hear Christ speak over us, well done, my good and faithful servant, then we must be ready to face these disappointments. We need to know how to weather it, how to adjust our perspective accordingly, how and where to find encouragement to press on. See, this is exactly what Peter is doing for us today in this passage. He is tempering us for the long haul. He's pointing us where we can ultimately find encouragement even when we're doing the right things and it's not working. When we don't get to see the fruit of our suffering and enduring and hard work, in relationship with, with others in missional community or, or those people that we're on mission to in our city. When I planted this church, leading up to it, my prayer was we wouldn't just plant a church that was a flash in the pan, right? Pop up, be a cool, hip church, and then five, ten years fade out. See, we planted this church for the long haul, to be a church that's here for 10 generations and beyond to plant our grandchildren's grandchildren's church. That we would have a legacy of gospel culture to hand down from generation to generation. And if we are going to do that, which I hope by God's grace we are able to do that, this passage will be key for us in facing the discouragements and frustrations that we find in living in community and on mission. So if you want to open up your Bibles this morning, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, if, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible right in front of you that's on page uh, 589, and we're going to study God's Word today. We're going we're to turn our ear toward God and, and listen, and it's through God's Word that He, prima, the primary way in which God speaks to us. So let me say this, as, as your pastor, one of my primary jobs, one of my primary responsibilities is to take complex things that we find in Scripture and make it understandable, right? Because if we look at Scripture, there's a lot of stuff that's awfully confusing. Now today, this is quite the challenge, given what Martin Luther has said about this passage we're in. He says this, this is a strange text, 
and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what this apostle meant, right? It's a, it's a confusing passage. And though it's confusing, Peter's intentions for us are not to confuse his readers, right? Because saying weird, hyper-spiritual things is not a spiritual gift, right? You know that guy in MC that's like always saying this weird stuff? It's like, dude, what's going on, right? That's not a spiritual gift. Clarity and precision is what Peter is after here. And though it's puzzling to us, what, what scholars, uh, scholars say is that this passage would have made absolute sense to the original audience given the, given the cultural trends. Now, for example, just think of this, right? In our time, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, right? These are, these are cultural memorabilia that pop up in normal uh, discussion. May the 4th, right? May the fourth be with you, right? That's, that's a cultural trend. That's, a, that's something that happens uh, in our culture. But I guarantee you, in 2,000 years, that's not going to make sense to a lot of people, right? So, so even now, we're 2,000 years removed from the original audience cultural context, and so we need to understand that some of this stuff won't necessarily resonate with us, not because it's not true, but it's just because we don't have the cultural platform. We don't have the cultural understanding. And so to cut through some of the confusion, let me just lay out front what the purpose of Peter's message is for us, so that this would be an anchor to us this morning. See, the objective here is to encourage the discouraged by the assurance of Jesus' victory. Right? That's what Peter's doing. He's, he's aiming to encourage the discouraged by the assurance of Jesus' victory. Now, no one in all Scripture, in all history is more, f- for, more familiar with the disappoint, disappointment and discouragement than Noah. Right? That's why he's mentioned in today's passage. Now, most people tend to think of Noah as this cute story we tell our kids about rainbows and animals that come two by two, which is in that story. But in, in one sense, there is a layer to misery. There's a layer to frustration, to disappointment, that kids can rarely comprehend. See, the story starts out in Genesis 6. The, the scene is set by saying that every one of man's intentions were always only evil. God's saying here that this time of Noah is an evil time. Now, just think of how overwhelming that would be, right? To live in a time where it seems all around you, everything's just falling apart. Right? Nobody has any regard for God. No one lives a good life. Everyone is just doing what they want, compiling the misery. And there is a man who experienced this. This man named Noah, who was situated in this evil and hostile culture, who was righteous and blameless according to God. See, this means that Noah was the odd man out. While everyone else is doing their own sinful, evil thing, Noah is here, and he's, he's having a relationship with God. He's, he's counted righteous and blameless in God's sight. There's something different about him. Now, to make matters worse for Noah in, in regards to standing out, God tells him, hey, uh, why don't you go build a big old boat in the middle of the desert, right? Why would you need a boat in the middle of the desert? But Noah, he gets after it. He starts building this enormous boat, and you would think, 
And if you think that your faith today, right, to, to have faith in Jesus, to, to have a Christian view of marriage, hetero, monogamous, lifelong relationship under the covenant of God, or if, or if the, the morality, your view of morality based upon the scriptures puts you out, then that's nothing compared to what Noah felt. Noah was the odd man out for sure. And for the, the 50 to 75 years that it took for Noah to build this ark, he was a preacher as well. He was a bivocational preacher. Second Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. And so in the time that Noah's building this ark, right, he looks like a fool out in the desert putting this enormous boat together. And then to top it off, he's, he's preaching to these people who are infatuated with evil about this message of repentance and faith that if they were to trust in God and get on the ark, that they would be saved from this flood that would eventually come. But nobody believed him. They said, Noah, you're crazy. There's no rain. It hasn't rained here in years. Why would, why would we believe you, you crazy old man? And over the course of these 50 to 75 years, Noah experienced zero conversions. Zero. Nobody. Nobody came to faith under Noah's ministry, right? Just think of how disappointing that would be to preach for 50 years and have nothing to show for it. Now, let me, this resonates with me because a couple of Sundays back to back, maybe three Sundays that, that we have low attendance, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? And Noah, 50 years, more than 50 years of preaching with nothing to show for At the end of those 50 years, well, I guess there's, there's eight people who get on the boat, right? All of them are his family, okay? That's it. Nobody else. Eight people, all his family, get on the boat. Now, just imagine the frustration of Noah here. Can you imagine that? Grinding it out for more than 50 years. There's not only the physical exhaustion of building an ark, right? They didn't have power tools back then. He, he only had eight people total that were like bought into this idea of the boat, and so he had limited help to make this giant boat. Physically, he was probably exhausted. Emotionally and relationally, right, feeling fatigued from always being harassed. Anytime he spoke up about this coming flood, people were like, Noah, you're crazy. Get out of here. He was disliked by everyone. And then the spiritual exhaustion to preach day in and day out. Now, preaching is an exhausting thing, right? At the end of a Sunday, I'm just wiped out. I cannot imagine Noah being day after day preaching this message of faith and repentance and not being completely exhausted. For him to face the hostility and ridicule, for him to pour himself out, to labor faithfully, and to have no payoff throughout his entire ministry would have been completely disappointing and discouraging. And then guess what happens? This giant flood comes and wipes out everyone on that's not on board. Right? All of the potential converts that Noah sees before him, gone. His ministry, it seems like. Right? I no longer have a platform to preach. There's no one who needs to hear my message. You want to talk about feeling like a failure? No one knew what it was like. 
even though he did everything that God commanded him to do. He had nothing to show for it except for his family on the boat, which is, that is certainly a big deal. But to have nobody outside of his family respond? See, at the end of the day, animals, animals, creatures, were more responsive to God than the people were. And then, Noah gets to spend six months, over six months, cooped up on a boat playing zookeeper, right? That is not a lot of fun. And he's just here in this boat, trapped in, sulking in the disappointment, probably the confusion, the frustration. I'm willing to bet that, that this was the lowest point in Noah's life. Just the frustration and disappointment confusion, the doubts. I bet depression even sat in. He did everything God asked him to do. He did it right. He preached the gospel. He invited anyone who would come to come on board, but nothing turned out. See, this is why Noah surfaces in our passage today, right? The elect exiles, and even we can relate to this. We can relate to Noah's discouraging experience. Like Noah, we are suffering, we are are enduring, we're pressing through difficulties to minister to people, to demonstrate the gospel, to live in community and on mission, and sometimes we do not see fruit. Sometimes all that work, it comes to the end, it's like, I have nothing to show for this. This is so discouraging. But this discouraging, discouragement we might face as we try to live faithfully to Jesus is nothing new. Why don't you take a look at verse 18 here. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the, righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now let me quickly acknowledge here the first thing that Peter says which makes this passage weird to us. It happens at the second half of of verse 8. 18 and into 19, where he mentions Jesus, who was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And then, and then he says that in this being alive in the spirit, he proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. Now, this is a topic that, that scholars disagree on exactly what this means. There's, there's probably at least three viable um, options or explanations for what Peter is actually saying here. And I don't have time to unpack it and probably be boring to most of you. But the questions that loom here, because it's important, is when did this happen? What did Jesus proclaim? And who exactly did Jesus proclaim this to? And if you have an opinion on this, that's totally fine. There's absolutely room for disagreement in this matter. But I can say with clarity and and with decisiveness what this is not many people christian or catholics especially think that this is a proof text for purgatory 
Right? That, there, that this purgatory is this place between uh, earth, your life now, and heaven or hell. That this time where you have to either make your wrongs right or have one last opportunity to hear the gospel. But this idea of purgatory is inconsistent with the rest of Jesus' teaching on heaven and hell. And it's also inconsistent with the gospel. So it can't be that. It can't be speaking of this idea of purgatory. So therefore, my explanation that I offer to you is this. That before the incarnation, before Jesus became baby Jesus, Jesus existed in spirit. We're told that in 1 John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That is, the Word is Christ. Before the incarnation, Jesus in spirit preached during the days of Noah. Now, some people might take this to mean that he preached through Noah, which be, would also be in conjunction with what Scripture teaches. That uh, We see that in, in um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, where it speaks of the prophets who, who, were, who were speaking on behalf of the Spirit of Christ that was within them. Right, so this would look like Noah preaching to the people of his time, offering them the gospel, saying that the God who the people had turned their back on was still willing to accept them if they would turn back to him, right? And what it looked like, walking that out, was to actually get up on the ark. I think that's a very likely explanation. However, the characteristics of this audience that we are told of, right, the spirits who are in prison, who formerly did not obey God, leads me to think something differently. The word spirits here is almost, is almost always used, without exception, to, you, uh, to refer to supernatural beings, right? Speaking of fallen angels. And this idea of imprisoned doesn't necessarily relate to humans as we walk about this earth. We're, we're never really called prisoners of the earth. But, but angels who have fallen are called angels prisoners because they have been removed from the place in which they were meant to dwell. They have been removed from heaven. Jude 6 speaks of this, that they, they were removed from their proper dwelling place and kept in eternal chains of darkness. So this implies the idea of prison. Now understanding this, that Jesus in the time of Noah came and preached to these fallen angels, it, it tells us what exactly he preached. He, he wasn't preaching an opportunity for them to, to turn back to God and, and repent because angels, as we've seen earlier in, in uh, 1 Peter 1, the angels do not get the opportunity for repentance. They are different from humans in that way. Humans are the only creatures that God offers the gift of repentance. And so Jesus did not go preaching in the sense of repent and believe. Jesus went proclaiming his certain victory over sin, evil, and death. He was proclaiming his triumph. So remember how in the time of Noah, everyone was only doing evil all of the time, right? This was a very bleak time to live in. No one was responding to the gospel message of salvation that God offered. Everyone continued in rebellion. And, and really from the outside, it looks like God was losing ground. Right? It looked like God was losing ground. Evil was triumphing over the world that God made to be good, right, and perfect. Now, this idea is 
culturally influenced because we tend to think of, of good and evil as a sort of yin-yang sort of thing. That they're equal counterparts. And it's always this question of who will emerge victorious? But if you believe the Bible is true, you see it differently. That God's victory is certain because he is all-powerful. Evil is not. So listen, God does not lose ground. He never has. He never will. All the power is his. There is nothing that can conquer him. And the beauty of it is this, that, that, that God uses his power to not just snuff out evil, right? Not just to, to wash the world in a flood and make it cleanse it in that sense, like he had done previously in Noah's time. The beauty is that he uses power to execute a redemptive plan to redeem, to restore humans to their full potential, to save us from sin without destroying us. See, and this is what baptism points to here. Just as Noah was brought through the waters of God's judgment through God's provision in the ark, so too are sinners brought through the waters of baptism through the atoning and redeeming work of Christ that God has provided for us. Now, there's a lot of confusion on what baptism really is, right? What it means and why we do it. Now, some Christians tend to err by blowing baptism out of proportion. Right? If you can't remember the exact day of your baptism, it doesn't count. Right? Some Christians err on the other side where they say, you know what, um, this baptism stuff, it doesn't really matter a whole lot, so take it or leave it. Right? Both tend to err there. So if it's not either of those, what is it? What is baptism? Well, Scripture tells us, it teaches us that baptism is a sign or a symbol and a seal of God's covenant. And I'm not talking like a blubbery water creature, right? A seal as in a stamp. Like you, you, would, you would seal an envelope with a wax stamp and press it down to say, this is certified. It is a sign and a seal of God's covenant. See, baptism is a visual thing. We watch people get into the water. We watch people bring their children to the waters of baptism. And that, that's a whole other can of worms I don't have time for today. But we see people being baptized. Now, this is a sign. It's a symbol. Paul talks about this in, in Colossians 2, verse 12. He says that going into the water as you're being baptized symbolizes being buried with Christ. That as you go down, it is as if you have been buried with Christ. And then here's the thing. As you're brought up out of the water, it is as if you have been resurrected, as if you've been ra raised with Christ. It is a symbol, it's a, it's a sign of what has been accomplished. But it's also a seal. It's God's stamp upon our life. It's, and the easiest way to explain it is in two parts. One, it's a marker for us that we have been marked by baptism. It's a marker that we belong to God, that we've been born into a new family, born with new identity, and now we are associating with God's family through baptism. And the second part of it is this, that acknowledges that God's promise, that what has happened to us externally, that we've been washed by the water, will happen completely and in full when God finishes his promise. 
See, the reality is that we, if we have come to faith in Christ, that we have been cleansed of our sin, but there is still this indwelling sin within us that still is lingering, it's pulling on us in the wrong direction, trying to divert us from going towards God. But baptism says this is the promise that God has, that one day we'll be completely washed, completely clean, and I am claiming that promise. See, now the reason why Christians do it is because our Lord Jesus has commanded us to do it. In the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Now, Jesus tells us to baptize. Now, the reason why baptism is subsequent here because uh, it's a result of gospel ministry, of living in community and on mission. When you live in community and on mission, the gospel is displayed. People will come to faith. They'll see your good works and glorify God in the day of his arrival. So as people see that, as they receive the gospel and understand it, their next step in following Jesus is to be baptized. See, this is the entryway into the church. That after being born again by God's mercy, you enter into the waters of baptism, which says, you guys are my people now. Now, hopefully, this gives you a little bit of framework here for baptism, right? A lot of us don't think about this too much, and that's fine. But we need this framework because verses 21 through 22 brings us into some theologically choppy waters, right? Let's take a look. He says, verse 21, baptism, which now corresponds to this, pointing back to Noah, okay, the the waters that they've gone through, baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, if you're theologically minded here, there's going to be a red flag that shoots up, right? Because it looks like Peter is saying, baptism saves you. You know, I read this this week, I was like, is there? Is there heresy in Scripture? <laughs> did, did Peter get this wrong? Is Peter saying that baptism is salvific, that the act of baptism saves you? Now, there, that would obviously go beyond the reach of the sign and the seal of baptism. Right? Where baptism, when you understand it's a sign and a seal, that, that means that, that it's not actually a mode of salvation, that it does not save you. Now, some, some people believe this, Catholics especially. I'm not trying to pick on Catholics, but this is, this is where we divert in our theology. See, they believe that baptism is the way to be saved. You'll see this specifically with nominal Catholics. Not all Catholics are this way, but but a lot of nominal Catholics who go and get baptized and say, "Now I've got that out of the way, right? Now I know I'm going to heaven, so I guess I can live however I want." Right? That that misses the whole point of baptism. And and Christians, like even even reform or, or Protestant people as well, that would sway that way. They think that that's that's off base. That's not what Peter is saying. This is, 
this view of baptism is theologically inconsistent with the rest of Scripture and with the gospel itself. In fact, it's anti-gospel. Right? To say that the being baptized is the way that you get saved, because here it is. It's placing value, it's placing importance on your work and not Christ's. Anything that points to you and your sufficiency is anti-gospel because the reality is you are not sufficient. And when you dig into what Peter is saying here, you can see there is more to it than that, right? Look at verse 21. It says, baptism, let me find it here, baptism, still looking, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, here it is, this is the more to it part, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, this is not, baptism is not just an external thing. It's more than just taking a bath in a public setting, which, by the way, would be really weird if that's what all, all it was. See, baptism points to a profound internal happening. It is, in the, Paul, Peter says, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, even with this language that he used, it can seem kind of weird to us, like we have to make an appeal to God in order to be saved. But that's not what's happening, because Peter is saying here, it's an appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus. You see, what you're doing here in baptism is you're appealing to something that has already been accomplished without your work. That Jesus has been crucified. He died. He was buried. But guess what? He was resurrected without any of your help. And it is this work of Christ that causes you to be born again. See, this is what it looks like to make your appeal to God through baptism. It means that you have been awoken to your sinful condition of the heart. You have realized that because of sin, you are vile and hopeless before a holy and righteous God. But because you have been woken up to this reality and you have been shown a truer, greater reality that Christ is sufficient, that he offers you a new identity, that he offers you life through his own life, death, and resurrection. See, in response to this, you cry out to God. You say, don't look at what I've done with my life. Look at what Christ has done for me. That's what it means to appeal to God. Don't look at what I've accomplished, but look to Christ. See, his blood covers me. He makes me righteous. He forgives me of my sin. He justifies me. He sanctifies me. And he will glorify me. See, baptism is an external appeal of what has already transpired with your heart, right? Baptism is saying, I'm with Jesus. So Christians believe this, that it's the act of baptism itself does not save you. There are baptized people, people who have actually been baptized, that probably aren't saved. Because why? There's not the internal happening of faith and repentance to say, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. 
See, real Christians believe the only thing that saves you is faith in the vicarious atonement of Jesus. A couple big words for you. What does that mean? Vicarious atonement. Vicarious means that something is done on behalf of the other. Right? You hear of vicarious moms who are trying to relive their teenage years through their teenage daughters, right? Trying to to step into that through someone else. It's the same idea. That Jesus suffered vicariously. He stepped into our place. And it's not a, a weird negative connotation. This is absolutely beautiful. That Jesus suffered vicariously for us in atoning for our sins. What does atonement mean? Atonement means to make wrong things right, to reconcile the wrong. So Jesus, by suffering on our behalf, makes things right between us and God. See, this is what verse 18, if you go back to verse 18, this is what verse 18 is talking about when he says, For Christ has also suffered once for sins. That that by once, Jesus, it means that he has suffered in a unique way that none of us will ever have to suffer because Jesus did that for us. That Jesus suffered once for sin, the righteous who is Christ, for the unrighteous who is us. See, it's impossible for you and I to make things right with God because sin has corrupted everything that we do. Anything we touch is corrupted. Even the good things have undertones of evil and corruption and self-glory. All your attempts at being good enough or making up for your past sins cannot undo or reconcile your wrongs. But because Jesus is perfect, because Jesus lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He made all things right with God by suffering for you, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. This means that Jesus subjected himself to the ultimate punishment for sin, that is death, so that we could be alive. So that, as a Christian, when you leave this body, when you leave this world, you don't plummet. That Christ has gone through the act of reconciling you to God, that he has restored you, he has brought you to God. He died to quiet that internal voice that's in your heart that's accusing you, you're not good enough. That's why Jesus died, to quiet that voice that tells you you're not good enough. So why? So that you could say, Because of what Christ has done for me, he has ransomed me, he has cleansed me, he has purchased me, he has washed me clean and made me new. But listen, as I close here, let me tell you this, that being saved isn't just about getting to heaven. Being saved isn't about cleaning up your life, it's not about making better choices, it's not even living a better life with less sin. Though these things are certainly byproducts of living a life that's in submission to Jesus. When you're living for Jesus, this stuff will probably naturally happen. But Peter shows us here the end goal, the pinnacle, the the reason why Jesus died was to bring you back to God. To bring you face 
to face with God. Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Salvation is far more than just having your sins forgiven. Salvation is far more than just the correct reprioritization of your life. Salvation is much more than just being a better version of yourself than you were yesterday. Salvation, being saved, is about having an intimate relationship with God, being face-to-face with your Creator. See, if your version of Christianity does not involve daily communion or daily intimacy with God, you are missing out on the greatest treasure in your life. If you are not experiencing the ultimate end goal of the gospel, you're missing out on the very thing that you were saved for. And listen, listen, friends, that right there, to know that, that you have been saved to being brought face to face with God, that's worth it. That is worth enduring when things are going sour. Right? That's your encouragement when you aren't seeing the fruit in life because regardless of how well you're doing at living in community on mission, Jesus has secured your right standing with God. You have complete access to God because of what Christ has done, just like a child has access to their ever-present father when they need help, when they need relationship, when they just want to be there. Now, this doesn't mean that when you're facing struggles in your life, when you're facing the difficulties of living in community and mission, when you're not seeing the fruit of it, it doesn't mean that you stop living as a missionary. Right? It doesn't mean you say, ah, oh, well, this, this hasn't worked out, so why keep on trying? See, because if you get to dive into the joys of being with God, you will naturally want to share that with others. Right? This is what propels you for a life of being in community and on mission. It's the intimacy. It's the delight. It's the pleasures of being with God. And Christians who are immersed in the gospel will live as missionaries even when the harvest is sparse. Right? Do you want to know how, how you know if you're believing the gospel? Look at your life. Am I continuing to gauge in community and on mission? Am I being a missionary even when things aren't panning out, when I don't see any fruit from it, when nobody's coming to church with me, when nobody's coming to missional community? See, a Christian who is delighting in God will endure that. So others who are out there, there, guys, there are people outside of these walls who are craving, they don't know it, they're craving to meet Jesus. We have an opportunity to offer them the only thing that will satisfy their souls. But there's even more encouragement here. Yes, the ultimate end of the gospel is to bring us to God. But not only have you been brought to God through no effort of your own, but you are also victorious when the seas of life, when the evil and sin surrounds you and it feels like it's conquering you, Christ has guaranteed victory. See, verse 22 ends with this. 
He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, that is the place of victory, my friends. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What that's saying is that Jesus is king over everything. There is not one thing in this world that is not subjected to the rule of Jesus Christ. That means even your suffering, even the the seasons of of struggle, Jesus is orchestrating that. You won't be defeated. Jesus gave Peter this, this promise. He said, Peter... You are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church, friends. Look at us. We are the result of Peter's ministry. He says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When evil surrounds us, when sin feels like it's pressing in, when it's trying to get us to compromise and give in and throw in the towel, we have the promise that because of Christ, we have been made victorious that sin and death do not get the last say. Jesus has triumphed over the grave. He has risen victorious, and he has been seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, we can rest with certainty that God is working out his redemptive plan, and we get to play a part in it, a small part. We're just like the, the extras, you know, in the background, but we're part of it. So it's with such confidence, one, that we have been brought near to God, and two, that through Christ we have been made victorious. Let us lean into this struggle of the Christian life. Let us press on in community and on mission. Let us continue laboring even when it's not bearing fruit. Let's continue making disciples, telling people of what Jesus has done to bring sinners to God. Now this morning we come to the Lord's table, which is also, like baptism, a sign and a seal of the covenant that God has made with us. It is a sign that Christ's body was broken, that his blood was spilled. And so now in this moment we have assurance that we are with God. We have been brought to God. That Jesus is actually present with us right now. We are communing with him. We're having a meal, an intimate meal, with Jesus and his people. And like I said, this is the apex. This is the the high point, the most important thing of our gathering this morning. See, everything that we've done this morning in our gathering, has led up to this moment. But this is also a seal. It is an assertion of God's promise that one day we will feast in paradise with Christ when he is in victory over all sin, evil, and death, and that has been wiped out and dealt with forever. So now as you come to the table, remember that you are bringing nothing to this table. You have nothing to offer God. You have nothing to show for yourself. But Christ has everything to show for you. He says, my body was broken for you. My blood was shed for you. And it is sufficient to make you right with God.
So come, receive the bread and the wine with humility, with outstretched open hands. You don't take it, you receive it. God offers it to you as a grace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your text. And though it is confusing and difficult to understand, here is one, two things we can be certain of, that, that Christ has brought us to you by suffering in our place, that he went to the cross so we wouldn't have to. And he has brought us to you. And it's also by that the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior that we can be certain of the victory that we have in him. Father, help us to be, be cemented in that. Help us to be people who can endure, who can be faithful even when the harvest does not seem like it's ripe. We are trusting you, Father, to bring about the harvest. We want to live in community and on mission. We want to be faithful to the calling that Christ has put on our life, but we need your Spirit's help to do that, and this meal that we are about to receive sustains us through it. Father, would you, would you cause a great gospel movement to come out from this place, that we would be so honored and blessed to see people coming to faith, to see people stand up here and speak of the mercy that they have received in Christ and, and enter into the waters of baptism and say, I am proclaiming, I am demonstrating what God has done internally in my heart. Help us to be a people that nurtures and loves others, those people we're on mission to, toward that, that you would be glorified in our life and in theirs as the gospel goes out. We pray all this in Christ's glorious name, amen.